You're listening to The Masters with Tiffany and Company on Monocle 24. Come with us as we meet pioneers from the fields of design, art, fashion, music and more. Diverse fields, a range of talents. What unites all these trailblazers is a certain mastery. A mastery of craftsmanship, of technique, of materials, of innovation to drive what they do. We'll hear about their life and their work and hopefully understand just a little bit more about how those notions have shaped them. Maybe too we'll divine a sense of the philosophy that's brought them here and might just inspire us in however small a way to follow in their storied footsteps. So far this series, we've heard from accomplished visual artists, we've heard from photographers, from designers of everything from magazines to culinary experiences. Today, we're meeting the brilliant typographer behind an array of award-winning typefaces, Jonathan Heffler. Jonathan met Monocle's Henry Reese Sheridan in New York City. Who are you and what do you do? I'm Jonathan Heffler. I'm a typeface designer in New York. When did you begin to pay attention to typography? I probably began paying attention as a child. My mother's English, my father is from the Midwest, and I spent summers in Yorkshire growing up and noticed as a kid that all the lettering on all the packaging in my grandmother's pantry was different from what I was used to. And British typography is dominated by a typeface called Gil Sands, which is the kind of ur-British letter. You don't see that very much in the States. And even when I would come home and see that there were packages that had been brought back from the UK, I could instantly tell which the American ones or which the British ones were by the lettering alone. I think that was kind of the beginning of noticing that typography is really the handwriting of a place in many ways. How did you begin to develop a practice of designing type? Did it begin as kind of sketches and childhood notebooks? It kind of did. Professionally, I think it began as a graphic designer. My love of type brought me into graphic design, and I worked as a graphic designer for about a year and a half. The early projects I did were things that were very type-heavy, and I found myself doing things like being commissioned to design a book cover, doing all the typography and ignoring the illustration of the photography. Gradually it became clearer that the part of the projects I enjoyed had to do with the type and the lettering, and that became a practice in doing lettering for other designers and gradually doing just typefaces. Did you go to college to study graphic design? I didn't. You couldn't really go 30 years ago to study type design. The options were to go to art school and get a degree in design or study something related in some way, like library science. I couldn't find enough type in the things I wanted to do, so I took some time off to decide what to do and found myself working. So you just went straight into designing typefaces professionally? I did. I started the company when I was 18. What was your first job, and how did you manage to secure it without having any academic qualifications in the field? I think I had a lot of mania, and that went a long way. You know, I've met a lot of art directors who are obsessed with typography, and certainly when I was beginning my career, we were all few and far between. To find somebody who knows the names of typefaces and loves typefaces and loves lettering, collects books about typography, was really the foundation of a lot of early friendships, and some of the first clients I worked with, people who were type-obsessed as well. The first typeface I designed was a typeface called Champion Gothic for Sports Illustrated. This was in 1990, I believe, and it began with a very simple brief to make a headline typeface and gradually became a family of six typefaces. And that was really the first time that I learned that the the factors that shape the work that I do aren't merely visual. A lot of the design brief came from the way the magazine operates, came from editorial goals. So we'd hear things like, 
editors often change headlines late at night, and if headlines run long or run short, it messes up the design. That promoted the idea of making this champion gothic typeface not in one width, but in six different widths, so the designers can anticipate the way editors were working. Take me through the process of formulating a typeface for an editorial application for a magazine. So I know that you've worked with Sports Illustrated. You've also worked for Rolling Stone. What's the kind of beginning of the process? Does it begin with an understanding of the editorial goals of the magazine? Every typeface is a little bit different in terms of where it begins. Some projects have a very emotional goal. A typeface for Harper's Bazaar began with a brief of creating a typeface that is elegant, that is refined, that, that does things that other typefaces didn't do. A typeface for a newspaper might begin with things like character count, making sure you can fit a certain number of words in a column or a page. Most projects have an aspect of both. There's a kind of material aspect and there's an emotional aspect as well. And in many ways, my job is trying to find ways to resolve these two things so they're not in conflict. Where did you move then from doing magazines? What was the first kind of non-editorial job that you had and how did you approach it? The first non-magazine typeface I did was probably for Apple in 1991. This was a typeface called Heffler Text, which I designed really for myself. It was kind of a vanity project. And one of the things I wanted to do was to create a, a much more robust typeface than was common at the time. Again, this is almost 30 years ago. Typefaces had small character sets. They didn't have decorative features like swashes and ligatures and all these, these goo-gaws. I felt very strongly that that a digital typeface had no reason to be limited by what was expected of the format. You could actually build a lot into these families. That idea happened to resonate with a team at Apple that was developing new technology to make typography more robust on the Macintosh. So they adopted the typeface for the operating system, and we developed it from there. So it began the way many contemporary projects for me do as well, which are an idea that I'm kind of itching to explore finds sympathy in somebody who wants to develop it, and we take that opportunity to grow it into something that's especially useful. So you just mentioned swashes and ligatures. Just give a potted summary of what those kinds of things are. Well, we think of the alphabet as A to Z, or A to Z, I suppose, uppercase, lowercase. The full character set a typographer might want includes small capitals, which are caps that are the same height as the lowercase. It might have swash capitals, which are typically italic. These are letters that have long looping tails to either side of them. They might include italic small capitals. Ligatures are combinations of two or more letters on the same glyph. So if you type a word like fish, you'll find the end of the lowercase f and the ball of the i not colliding, but being resolved in some intentional way. Once you begin thinking about a character set in terms of creating more and more voices for designers to use and more and more semantic levels of information to distinguish text, you can really go crazy. A typeface, when I began my career, typically had about 203 characters in it typefaces these days can have more than two or three thousand, sometimes ten thousand. So a lot of what we're doing as well today is really kind of reining in the the range of what is possible to do in a typeface in terms of what makes the most sense for a particular design or a particular application. My understanding is that swashes and ligatures go back a very long way in the history of typography. And there's a kind of tasty paradox in that the kind of bandwidth of digital typography which is this very new invention, has kind of created room for the reintroduction of these arcane characters. Very much so. One of the the paradoxes of typography is every time there's a major technological shift, 
things become boring. When digital type became a reality with desktop publishing in the 1980s, suddenly all of these features that had been in type really since Gutenberg began to vanish because type was being confined by standards. And it normally takes a beat before the industry catches up and realizes that the standard itself can adapt to serve what the designer wants to do and what readers might expect. A lot of my career has been spent looking at historical typography and finding things that I think are either excellent ideas that should be revived or half-finished ideas that could be explored differently. And for me, that, that really is one of the things about type design that's so interesting. It's this keeping one foot in the past and one in the future. I know that you turn to historical sources a lot for inspiration. There's a lot of typefaces that simply don't exist outside of these physical collections, which were presented to clients to select from and kind of catalogue. Yeah, it's another strange paradox of typography is since for most of its history it's been material, the material tends to wear out and vanish. And we think today about choosing a typeface or buying a new typeface in terms of whether a new design will better satisfy what we're trying to do. But a century ago, buying a new typeface was a matter of replacing old material. So when you look back on centuries of metal type and certainly centuries of wood type, Things were melted down and recycled. Things wound up in people's ovens. The materials that became obsolete were simply ended. And one of the potentials of the digital era, certainly, is that that won't happen, that things can be maintained in perpetuity. You mentioned that every time there's a technological revolution, typography gets a bit more boring. Now, how has it got a bit more boring with this digital explosion? Well, it gets more boring, but it quickly rebounds and becomes more interesting each time, I think. I suppose the current technology that is really exerting the greatest pressure on typography is the screen. Typefaces that are meant to be used on mobile devices and laptop and desktop screens. The ways in which fonts are used today are constrained by what's possible in formats like cascading style sheets or HTML. And what is happening or what has happened in the last 10 years on the web is what happened in the first 10 years of desktop publishing. We found that engineers come to typography from the outside with a set of ideas that are alien to what we're accustomed to as typographers, but relevant to the way people think about computer science. And the kind of friction between these two systems of expectation create interesting ideas. So it's only been recently that it's been possible to use things like swashes and ligatures and small caps and so on on the web. The web for its first few decades was a relatively anodyne environment for reading. So let's talk about one or two of your most recent projects. Decimal, I know, is something that you've been working on, which is a typeface kind of modelled after the typography found on vintage wristwatches. Decimal has been a fun project. It began a few years ago when I began really looking critically at watches for the first time. It never occurred to me until about 10 years ago to even buy a wristwatch. And as I've been looking at them, I, I began noticing that there's this palpable sense that old watches and new watches are different in some way. And one can talk about things like the glass being different or the stainless steel or, or the, the movements or whatever. But for me, it was the lettering. There's a feeling that is consistent among watches made from maybe 1920 to 1985, that begins to change in recent vintages. And the culture of older wristwatches was really shaped by hand lettering made by artists, one character at a time, as opposed to fonts that are drawn from the world at large. 
So what I wanted to do with Decimal was to see if I could revive some of the spirit of the this wonderful kind of timeless lettering you'd see on old wristwatches and adapt it to serve as a typeface, adapt this lettering that was designed character by character for individual situations into a system of fonts that could be used by a designer or an author today. And another project you're working on, which delights me as a major Spinal Tap fan, is a black letter font. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I love the black letter, and I'm also a Spinal Tap fan, by the way. Yeah, black letter is marvelous. We think of the black letter, or I guess Old English, as most people call it colloquially, as a kind of fossil, but it's not. It's this marvelous living thing that is part of so many kinds of communication. Spinal Tap is a great example. It's metal and parody at the same time. But black letter faces are used in, you know, in gangster rap and prison tattoos. But they're also used in law journals. And to me, the black letter has this incredible power to bring gravity to anything, no matter what your message is. This says, I'm serious. Parliament is a new typeface I'm working on. I shouldn't say new. I began this in the early 90s, and it's been a, a slow burn ever since. But it's trying to revive what was really one of the last great black letter typefaces from 19th century England when the black letter was beginning for the first time to be used on posters. And you begin to see these, these letter forms that had this ecclesiastical origin that were very sober, inflated to this this massive weight being used for handbills and posters and, you know, to sell remedies and lottery tickets and things like that. Parliament is trying to investigate really why this last breath was the last breath of the black letter and to see if that idea can be sustained and revived. How important is craftsmanship and technique in what you do? Well, I think it's critical in what I do. One of the measures of a good typeface is just how impeccably it's spaced and how impeccably it's drawn. There are typefaces that are good ideas poorly rendered and those that are bad ideas well rendered. It's a toss-up as to which is better, but I will always favor the one that serves the reader. I will always favor clarity and legibility and this idea that the purpose of the design is manifest in the way it's created. What's the most unlikely use of one of your typefaces that you've encountered? That's an interesting question. I mean, I see them every day and I'm I'm getting better about tuning things out, so I'm, I'm actually able to read once again rather than looking at letter forms. Seeing anything I've done which can feel so ephemeral used in a permanent way is always very moving. Something I discussed in the Netflix documentary Abstract was seeing our Gotham typeface used on the cornerstone for the New World Trade Center. And to have lived through 9-11 as a New Yorker and to see these letter forms that I remember being drawn in my office. I mean, it was as if it was yesterday. We were sitting and drawing these characters, literally engraved in stone and used for a monument was unexpected and quite compelling as well. There's a much higher general level of awareness of typography, basically as a direct result of the fact that everyone has played around with different typefaces on their phones or computers. Do you think that that's raised the quality of typography or raised the expectations that people have of the letter sets that they see? Well, I think in general, increasing awareness of anything will give you greater quality and greater quantity. So we're seeing more typefaces made now than ever before. A lot of them are first-time designs by first-time designers, which I can say with pride because I you know, am a former first-time designer. I think that we're seeing a greater degree of literacy among readers, which is a nice surprise. People are able to better identify book covers and movie titles and things like that in terms of what's inside based upon the lettering outside. And I think that creates a lot of opportunity for designers to be more ambitious more arch, maybe more specific in the work that they do, 
to think about using typography not just as a blunt instrument to convey general themes, but to see how specific they can get. To say, this book is about 19th century map making, but this book is about early 20th century map making. What can we do? I saw a fantastic book cover recently about the history of the Omega Speedmaster watch. And the name of the book is From Speedmaster to Speedmaster. And whoever designed the cover has used the 1960s logo for the first word Speedmaster and the 1990s version for the second. And it's funny. I mean, it's it's a great joke if you're a watch enthusiast, but it's also palpable. As a casual reader, you can see there's a difference, and it's engaging. You wonder, why are these things different? And it, it really draws you inside. That, to me, is the great power of typography. The great Jonathan Heffler there, talking to Monocle's Henry Rees Sheridan. And you can find out more about Tiffany & Company's men's collection by heading to tiffany.com and searching for men's jewellery. In the episodes ahead, we'll be meeting more inspirational innovators across fields like design, art, music and more to find out how they've mastered their craft and become trailblazers. Next week, we'll be speaking to the globe-trotting explorer, David Rothschild. But that's all for today's edition. Thanks to our editors and production team here in London. I'm Tom Edwards. This is The Masters with Tiffany and Company on Monocle 24. Thanks for listening. <laughs>